Paleo Runner Podcast is devoted to finding better ways to live, run, train, and eat. I'm your host, Aaron Olson. You can find more information by going to paleorunner.org. If you enjoy the show, please leave a review on iTunes. Search for Paleo Runner in iTunes and click on Ratings and Reviews. I wanted to take a minute to let you know about a product that I've been using over the past few weeks called 3Fuel. 3Fuel is a sports drink that utilizes fats, proteins, and carbohydrates as a fuel source. Unlike other sugary sports drinks, 3Fuel gets absorbed slowly into your bloodstream and gives you energy throughout your workout. It won't give you a blood sugar spike like other sports drinks, which means that you can continue to utilize fats throughout your workout. I do a lot of time trials during my training, and since I've been using 3Fuel, I've run some of my fastest times this year in the 10K and 10 mile. I took 45 seconds off from my previous workout for both the 10K and 10 mile and brought my times down to 59 minutes and 36 minutes. Another thing about 3Fuel is that it doesn't cause GI distress like other sports drinks tend to do. If you'd like to try it out, you can get 10% off by using the coupon code 3FOLSON. That's 3, the letter F, Olson, O-L-S-O-N. You can go to paleorunner.org and click 3Fuel at the top of the page to get the coupon code. If you're listening on the podcast app for iPhone, click on the link displayed on the app right now. My guest today is Ben Greenfield. Ben runs a highly popular health and fitness website and podcast at bengreenfieldfitness.com. He's a contributor to Triathlete Magazine, Endurance Planet, WebMD, Women's Running Magazine, and is the author of numerous books on health and fitness, including The Low-Carbohydrate Guide for Triathletes. Ben, welcome to the show. It's great to have you on. Yeah, what's up, Aaron? It's, it's, uh, it's good to be here. Thanks so much. So when did you get started on the low-carbohydrate approach to endurance sports? Um, you know what? I actually don't know. I'm, I'm not sure. I, I didn't really like mark it down on the calendar or anything and say, like, this day this day is officially <laughs> my 100 grams of carbohydrate day. But, I mean, like, you know, it's kind of been kind of a transition. Like, I, I initially just started trying to eat less gels when I was out racing um, or even doing workouts in preparation for races. It just always felt healthier. And I always felt better when I'd like, you know, grab a bag of almonds and head out for a bike ride rather than like a handful of gels or, or, you know, a couple water bottles of, of sports drink or Gatorade. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with, with that philosophy, I, I kind of started experimenting a little bit more as well with just not, not really being married to the traditional endurance philosophy of sports drinks, you know, post-workout or throughout the day to keep you hydrated. You know, I, I remember I've, I've, I've had professional triathletes come and, you know, hang out at my house before, before Ironman Coeur d'Alene and they'll sit there on the couch, you know, literally like watching movie, eating, you know, sport blocks and gels and drinking <laughs> Sunny D and Gatorade. And to me, I just always felt like crap when I did that. And I've, mm-hmm. I've done 23andMe.com genetic testing I've tracked my blood glucose markers, uh, my hemoglobin A1C, all of the things that would indicate um, metabolic processing of sugars. And it it does appear that I certainly do have propensity for type 2 diabetes. I've also noticed that if I'm I'm not careful, I just tend to go hypoglycemic very easily. And so I think that's that's probably that subconscious feeling of what sugars do to me kind of drove me to experiment with more stable energy sources that wouldn't send my blood sugar levels on a roller coaster ride. And so um, over the years, probably the past two to three years, somewhere in there, I have gradually made the switch from, okay, I'm not going to use gels to fuel my workouts to I'm not going to use them to fuel my races either. 
to I'm just basically going to limit sugar in general and carbohydrates, even, you know, quote unquote, safe starches and things like that as well. And the more I do that, the better I feel, the better my mental clarity is, the more energy I have, the easier it is to stay lean, um, the better my mood is, uh, the less inflammation I experience in my joints, um, the less connective tissue degradation I experience in the form of injuries and nagging aches and pains, um, you know, and just a, a host of other factors. And, and you know, I'd, I get people that walk up to me and just ask me why I don't have wrinkles on my face and, you know, why I don't appear to be as, as just kind of beat up from an external standpoint as many endurance athletes. And a big, big part of that is I'm simply not creating a, a crapola of advanced glycation end products from carbohydrates reacting with protein and connective tissue and causing wrinkles and skin degradation. So, you know, there's, there's just a host of benefits that I've realized that have, that have really gotten me excited about you know, mm-hmm. this approach. So you mentioned their inflammation, sugar spikes, and wrinkles. How, how old are you? I mean, I, I, you look like a pretty young guy on your website. Well, I'm 31. Okay. And, you know, that obviously so. when I say wrinkles, I'm not talking about, you know, like 90-year-old man. But when you, when you look at, at endurance athletes, even in my age group, straight up, close to close, face to face, you see issues with the, with the iris of the eye that indicates uh, there's some pretty significant inflammation going on. You see a lot of crow's eyes and wrinkles around the lips and dried skin more so in females than in males really um that that show that there's some premature aging going on and of course you see people just injured like mm-hmm. all the time and of course getting injured isn't just about eating sugar i don't i don't want to deceive anybody and make them think that you can eat a high fat diet and then go you know, ignore mobility and balance and range of motion and, you know, connective tissue integrity and you're going to be fine, but it does play a role. Okay. Okay. So those, those sugar spikes and the inflammation, can you go into a little bit about what, what, why would a higher carbohydrate diet cause inflammation, but a higher fat diet might not? Well, one of the things uh, that that it comes down to is simply the fact that when you're constantly um, spiking blood sugar levels, which which you would be doing, you know, with any type of of inflammation based dietary intake, um, what you're going to do is cause an inflammatory reaction. Specifically, there are cytokines that are released, as well as something called creatine kinase that's released in response to higher amounts of blood sugar getting dumped into the bloodstream. Um, Insulin can also create a a low-level state of inflammation if it's constantly being churned out by the pancreas. The other issue that happens is that sugars in the bloodstream can oxidize cholesterol particles in the bloodstream. And so you increase risk for atherosclerosis and smaller oxidized cholesterol particles kind of digging their way into the endothelial cell walls, um, increasing risk for plaque formation and things of that nature. Um, the other thing is, is the fact that carbohydrates, just the same way as if you bake a cake in the oven, you, and, and, you know, let's say you, you put a bunch of protein powder in the cake, you know, let's just make that protein powder be your, your tissues and, you know, the proteins in your skin and things of that nature. And then you react that with the sugars under heat, you know, under, under conditions of heat. I mean, and the human body is a hot machine. Um, what happens is you also get oxidation from that and, you know, the, the proteins stick to the carbohydrates and you get, you know, basically those advanced glycation 
education end products that I mentioned. And so, I mean, you, you put all this together and it, and it creates a pretty good scenario for inflammation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and those those advanced glycated end products, that's things like the crispy edge of uh, bacon and stuff like that. And, and so if that's happening in your body, you're probably messing yeah, up like, the collagen like fibers. crispy bacon edges. <laughs> yeah, yeah you, that's what you should title this podcast, crispy bacon <laughs> edges of your joints. Um, but yeah, it's, it's crispy bacon edges in your joints and your skin. <laughs> okay. That's a good way to think about it. Well, that makes sense. So um, what, what are some of the uh, high fat fuels that you use during training and every day that people listening to this show could, if they're interested, could, could start incorporating it into their diet? Yeah, it's a, it's a tough question for me because I really don't even like eat that much during a workout or, you know, even pre-workout and post-workout is pretty much an afterthought. So for me, it's just meals. And if you're eating a higher fat diet, your meals are usually enough to stabilize any workouts that are done in between those meals. So like for breakfast, it really varies. Right now I'm on a shake kick. So I'll take a bunch of kale and spinach and put that into, um, and I use something called an Omni blender. It's similar to a Vitamix, um, except it's cheaper. <laughs> so I put in a bunch of kale and sometimes some spinach in there, sometimes some arugula for a little bit of extra nitric oxide. And then I dump some healthy fats in there. So usually one avocado. And then I put about a quarter to a half can of full fat, organic BPA free coconut milk in there. Uh, I will drop typically three or four um, shelled Brazil nuts in there. I keep those in the freezer to kind of keep them mold free. Um, But those are really good for testosterone and thyroid. So I put those in there as well. Um, I do some cinnamon in there for some of the blood sugar stabilizing properties that cinnamon has. I do a little bit of vanilla extract just for a little bit of extra flavoring. Uh, if it is a harder workout day, you know, a big, big session plan for the day, something like that, I'll toss a couple tablespoons of coconut oil in there to get my medium chain triglyceride levels elevated so that I stay in, in ketosis. Um, and then what else am I putting in there? That's, that's it. I blend that. And then once I blend it, what I do is I stir in a little bit of nut butter, like an almond butter and some unsweetened coconut flakes because I like that texture and I eat it with a spoon. So I, 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 um, I blend it thick enough to be able to eat it with a spoon. So how does that taste? It doesn't sound like it would be uh, very sweet. I just took up all our time describing (laughs) breakfast. Um, you know what? It's, it's, um, it's really good. It's kind of savory. You get a little bit of natural sweetness from the cinnamon and the coconut milk. Um, okay. Even the almonds lend a little bit of natural almondy sweetness, the vanilla. Um, you know, most people, once they start eating a higher fat diet, you reinvent your palate pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. So for me, that's like one of the sweetest things I have all day, honestly. Like, to me, it tastes sweet. Um, okay. But, you know, it's not like... Like, you know, chocolate covered cocoa puffs or anything like that. Um, and so, so, you know, that'll keep me going. If I if I have that typically around like 9 a.m. or so, that usually keeps me going until 1.30 or 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And then in the afternoon, I'll typically have a salad. Um, and that's just a basic salad, usually more spinach or more kale. I throw avocado on there. I put some olives on there, some olive oil. Uh, typically sardines are what I like. But if you don't like sardines, you know, grass-fed beef, chicken, 
whatever. If you're if you're vegan or vegetarian, you could just use extra avocados and olives. Maybe throw some walnuts in there. Um, but yeah, it's basically just a high fat salad. Really, is all it is. And mm-hmm. so I'll do that. Um, if I didn't work out between breakfast and lunch, and I've got an afternoon workout, usually I will throw in a little snack, like right after lunch or at some point before, sometimes after that afternoon workout. And that snack is typically some coconut milk. I put a little bit of protein powder in there. I use a, a hemp, pea, and rice-based protein blend, um, frankly, because my uh, I do a lot of blood testing, and I tend to create a lot of, of immunoglobulins and antibodies to whey and dairy in general. And so I, I choose a, a vegan-based protein rather than a whey-based protein. I just feel better. And so I, I mix that in with some coconut milk and sometimes throw a little bit of extra almond butter and cinnamon in there. It's almost like my morning shake without all the kale and everything. Um, and I'll just stir that together in a little bowl. You know, it's maybe 300, 400 calories or so. Um, and then dinner, because usually, you know, it's three, sometimes four times a day that I'm eating. Dinner is usually just whatever meat we happen to have. You know, we, we keep an organic grass-fed cow in the freezer. Um, it's dead. It's not just <laughs> cold, shiv- shivering in the corner of the freezer. But a, but an organic grass-fed cow, <laughs> steaks and burgers and stuff like that, you know, some pemmican, uh, some chicken, some wild fish, stuff like that in the freezer. And we'll usually cook something up and, and have that, you know, barbecue it, grill it, saute it, whatever, and have that with, with some kind of a vegetable or something, you know, like asparagus or, you know, a cauliflower mash or some broccoli or, you know, something of that nature. Okay. You mentioned there that dairy is anti-inflammatory to you. Is that something that you would recommend people avoid in general? Well, it's not anti-inflammatory. It's actually inflammatory or in my case. Inflammatory, um, right. Um, no, some people do just fine with dairy. You know, like like we use it. We, we drive to a local farm. We're, we're part of a group of families, and we drive to a local farm every six weeks. And um, everybody takes turns bringing back the dairy, but it's an organic farm, um, you know, grass-fed dairy unpasteurized and homogenized raw milk and we'll take that back and you know we'll we've got some kefir grains so we'll make kefir and we'll make yogurt and you know we'll also have milk and typically any time that the dairy is lacto fermented meaning used to make kefir or used to make yogurt or used to make yogurt cheese or something like that um, I do okay with it because lacto fermentation actually can cause uh, casein and whey to be a little bit more digestible for folks and cause fewer issues. Um, I, I don't do well with the unfermented, you know, just like the regular raw milk, even though that's that's really healthy and really good for a lot of people. I just genetically don't do well with it. Um, and you know, anything that's just like store bought dairy wreaks havoc on me. Really, you know, you start mm-hmm. you you'll tell right away. You know, you get a little bit bit of a mucus drip. Bowel movements aren't as good. Um, sometimes you just feel a little bit of brain fog, and you know it's a it's a pretty good sign. You you can always go out and do a test. There's there's one here in the U.S. called a U.S. Biotech Immunoglobulin Test. Um, a company called Metametrics also does one, and you can just find out you know what what you tend to have a reaction to, and it's really interesting. Like I have a, a little bit more of a reaction to chicken egg or to uh, yeah to chicken eggs, sorry than uh, than duck eggs, and so we buy duck eggs at the at the co-op at the market rather than chicken eggs and you find out little things like that that are kind of useful if you're trying to to get every edge possible you know in terms of health okay how long does it take to adapt to a diet like this is it something that you can just try for a few days do you need to try it for weeks well, it'll take you about 10 to 14 days to really begin to um, rely upon fatty acids more efficiently as a fuel to overcome some of the brain fog that, that you get when your your brain gets through the oh crap moments of realizing that glucose is no longer readily available as its primary source of fuel. 
um, you dump a little bit of, of uh, glycogen, which carries out some water with it and carries out some sodium with it. As you produce less insulin, you also tend to retain less sodium on the kidney level. So your blood pressure drops and you know your body will eventually respond to that by producing a little bit more of a hormone called aldosterone to normalize you and stabilize you. But that takes a little while for the body to kind of bounce back and, and do all of these things. So typically one to two weeks is a pretty good rule of thumb for getting over the hump of, of not feeling all that hot. Um, you know, and then after that, you, you make the switch and, you know, that you'll experience some other things. For example, you know, you might find that that fat malabsorption is an issue because your body doesn't really churn out a lot of lipase if you've been eating, you know, like a low fat diet. So, you know, you may need to use some digestive enzymes like like some lipase before your meals, you know, even some bile salts, some lemon juice, some bitters. Things like that can help folks, but but those wouldn't be for life. Those would just be you know during the first month or two as you as you get over the hump. Okay. And how about during or before races? Are you pretty much sticking to this low carb style, or will you do some sweet potatoes the night before? Um, well, that's an interesting question. Like a, a lot of times, the, the the highest sugar I take in the the couple of days before race is coconut water, because um, I just feel really really great when I drink coconut water before race, and that obviously has trace amounts of sugar in it, and. You know, I I do have a trace liquid minerals blend that I keep in my refrigerator and I drink when I'm at home, but it's in a big bottle and sometimes I it's not feasible for me to bring that to races. And so in those cases, I'm just buying coconut water. So I certainly do get some sugar from coconut water. It's not a lot. You know, what is it like? I think like five or six grams of sugar in a coconut water, depending on the brand you get. So, you know, that's not a ton, but typically I'll do two or three coconut waters. Um, the night before, you know, I've, I've been doing some white rice or some sweet potatoes or some yams. That's that's pretty much the only real stray that I make from eating low carb. But even that, um, I'm going to be experimenting over the next 12 weeks because I'm I'm trying to stay in what's called ketogenesis and, and full ketogenesis, not cyclic ketogenesis where you're eating a little bit of extra carbohydrate on the weekend or whatever. But I'm using breath monitors and blood testing to keep myself in full ketogenesis to see if it's possible to do that for 12 weeks in my buildup to race Ironman Canada in August. And so for that race, for the races that I do in the three months leading up to that race, for the workouts, for everything, um, and I've already warned my wife about this because we will occasionally have like, you know, sweet potato or yam or something like that sometimes um, with dinner. But I'll just be cutting, you know, pretty much everything out no matter what, even on high volume days and just relying upon, you know, triglycerides and fatty acids as a fuel okay yeah that'll be really interesting to see have have you been able to measure any ketone levels in your bloodstream yet yeah i've done one-off tests and you know just experimented with devices i'm working with a company called metron we're going to be doing um actually breath-based ketone testing and okay. so i'll work with metron to do blood-based or i'm sorry breath-based ketone testing um with the goal of keeping ketones above 1.0 millimolar uh, in the in those 12 weeks um and then i'll also be working with a company out of San Francisco called Talking 20, which allows you to uh, identify about 20 different parameters in your bloodstream, like inflammation. Um, hormones are going to be a really important one that I want to track, you know, thyroid and testosterone, and just basically see what happens to the body from a health level. So, so those are single blood drops that go into a little piece of paper they send to you. You mail it back into them like a postcard, and they, they run the test sam samples. So I'll be collecting a lot of data during this time as well, because, of course, that's the concern. And this is all really just stuff people don't know like you know could you actually go out and train for iron man and train hard for iron man like i don't mess around i, I want to go fast can you do that without you know with a low carbohydrate or a ketogenic diet suppressing
suppressing testosterone or suppressing thyroid or doing some of the things people suggest that it may do. Mm. Yeah, that'll be really interesting to see. I'm looking forward to seeing the results. I'll, I'll, I'll be kind of posting preliminary results over at bengreenfieldfitness.com, my blog. And I'll also be at the uh, the Ancestral Health Symposium in Atlanta, Georgia in August, and we'll present some results there as well. Oh, great. You know, another area of fitness I'd like to talk to you about is this idea that of what you call a minimal training protocol. And I don't know if you're still doing this, but you've talked a lot um, on your blog and podcast about doing higher intensity for a shorter amount of time and getting similar results. Can you tell the, the listeners mm-hmm. a little bit about what that's like? Sure. And, and yeah, I certainly do still do that. Um, what I mean by that is that I train anywhere from six to 10 hours a week for Ironman triathlon in contrast to the 20 to 30 hours a week that's typically for the average Ironman triathlete. And I do that by incorporating high-intensity interval training, um, by avoiding long, slow workouts. Um, You know, I just did back-to-back triathlons at the Wildflower Triathlon down in California, a half Ironman one day, Olympic distance the next day, posted two of the fastest run splits of the entire field on both days. Uh, But I only run twice a week. Um, I do one 20-minute session midweek and one 60- to 90-minute session uh, at the end of the week, that's just a, a focused, you know, kind of tempo based trail run. Um, and, uh, what I combine that with is kind of this concept of just staying active. Um, something I call greasing the groove. Um, I didn't coin that term. It was coined by a, a, a guy who trains Russian warriors and, and his name is Pavo Zetsalini. But the idea is like, I have a pull-up bar installed in the door of my office. So I do five pull-ups every time I walk under that, you know, I'm standing right now as we record this interview and I spend a lot of time standing on my feet. Um, I, I do, you know, yoga and meditation every morning for about 10 minutes to, to enhance recovery. And I kind of do a lot of like what I'm getting at is I don't plant my butt in the chair for eight hours a day and then go train. And I think that if you stay active during the day and you almost trick your body into thinking that it really is just kind of hunting and gathering throughout the day, that you only need mild doses of intense exercise to kind of sharpen the edges of that endurance and allow yourself to go out and do ultra endurance activities because the human body is really good at endurance. We can hunt down any animal on the planet given enough time. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we what we suck at is speed, balance, mobility, explosiveness, strength, a lot of the components that endurance athletes tend to uh, neglect. Okay. So you're, you're doing an Ironman triathlon, which involves, that takes like nine and a half, 10 hours for you. Am I correct? Mm-hmm. And, and, and you're only training six uh, for the run portion you're only training 60 to 90 minutes on the weekend that's uh pretty incredible if someone wanted to go about this how do they get started yeah but but i spend six to eight hours a day on my feet standing. right right so all those tiny core muscles on my feet and everything they're strong uh-huh. you tell somebody to stand with good posture for six to eight hours a day and most people can't do it mm-hmm. um and so that, that's a big big part you know okay and that's something to remember is it's not really when people are going out and doing those long long runs they're training themselves to spend time on their feet. There's not something magical happening aerobically that's not happening at the 60-minute mark or at the 90-minute mark. That it's just it's it's mental and it's time on the feet. And you can you can achieve that just in your day-to-day life. So you know if people want to start, I'd say try this. If you're a runner, try doing one 20 to 30-minute run session on the weekdays and make it hard. So mine, you know, example of a 20 to 30-minute run session for me is warming up on a treadmill for one mile and then doing 10 by 30 second sprints on the treadmill with the treadmill at 10% incline and 10 to 12 for speed Uh and hopping off the 
prescribed meal after each of those 30 second efforts and walking it off for 30 to 60 seconds until I feel ready to rumble again and getting back on the treadmill and doing it again, finishing up the last sprint, calling it a day. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's your midweek session. And then for your weekend session, an example um, would be going out and doing a quick warm up and then three 20 minute efforts at race pace, that ABP, always be pushing pace. Okay. Painful. You've got your MP3 player on or whatever with your driving techno music or your rock and roll or whatever inspires you and, and you're, you know, foaming at the mouth and you're pushing yourself. You know, there's a, there's a bear chasing you. So three by 20 minutes of that with 10 minute recoveries in between each. Mm-hmm. So just, just try that out, you know, quit, quit, quit pounding the pavement at lunchtime during your lunch hour for one hour, five days a week and going out and setting your watch for two hours and doing your two hour long weekend run. Just try those two sessions mm-hmm. and then stand as much as you can and, and see what happens to your body. And it's pretty cool because you also don't experience all the hormonal deficits that occur with pounding the pavement all the time. Okay. Yeah, you know, I talked to Brian McKenzie a few weeks ago, and he was actually saying um, that one of the benefits of a more low-volume approach is that you get a lot more recovery so that when you do do those hard sessions, you're really ready to rock. Is that something that you found as well? You mean knowing, kind of knowing how to go to the pain cave? Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, you, you're so recovered yeah, that, during the that, week well, that, you know, you're ready to hit it hard again once the once your next run comes. Oh, yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, you, you certainly you certainly do have that advantage. And it's interesting because they've done studies on this and they've found that most people, when left to their own whims, tend to train in no man's zone, 70% intensity or so. So kind of sort of hard, but not hard enough to elicit a very significant training response. Mm. But if you take people and you prescribe them training and, and you literally give them only easy, easy stuff, like standing on your feet all day and you know doing some pull-ups during the day or whatever, and then every once in a while inject extremely hard efforts, they're actually able to do the extremely hard efforts as hard as they're supposed to. So that's that's an advantage. And of course, the other advantage is that when you do arrive at the race line, unlike the people who have been training at 70 percent the entire year, when you're standing on the starting line, you know how to go to the pain cave. You know how to dig deep because you've been there and cool things happen. Like one of the biggest things is that you don't cramp because cramping more often than not is not an electrolyte or hydration issue. It's an issue of your alpha motor neurons in your brain sending a protective spasm signal to your muscle to protect that muscle because the muscle is being required to do something that it hasn't experienced experienced in training. And typically in most folks, that is the whatever, the cyclist during an Ironman triathlon who has somebody in their age group past them and all of a sudden they speed up to 300 watts and they've never really done that in training. And so their calf cramps up and screws their race and they end up walking the marathon because they don't really have a calf to use and it's all because they never actually went out and did 300 watt intervals during their buildup. You know, so, so that's another big advantage in doing this, this higher intensity stuff. Okay. When judging how much you're supposed to do, is it kind of a personal thing where you know, say you're training for a 10K versus a marathon, do you just have to kind of personally tinker with your training system or do you have a specific protocol that people could go to your your website and get more information about? Well, a lot of people hire me to write out their training plan or their nutrition plan. Um, And I actually have a coaching website called Pacific Elite Fitness and that's over at uh, pacificfit.net and at pacificfit.net. Um, you know, you can click on coaching and, and hire me to write a training program for you or, or work with you on a monthly basis or do a, do a phone call or whatever. Um, I do have some programs out there that I've written. Most of my programs I've written are for triathlon. I have one called Marathon Dominator. That's a minimalist training program for marathon and half marathon. And that one's at marathondominator.com. My triathlon program that utilizes minimalist training is at triathlondominator.com. 
Um, you know, and, and I do have on a website called training peaks, I have some 5k and some 10k plans, um, you know, some plans here and there, but you know, ultimately, you know, I, I really like to be able to see what an athlete is shooting for and customize stuff. And I think, I think pre-written plans have value, but I mean, if you're paying all this money and spending your life training and you're like, you decide you're going to spend whatever, 20 bucks on a training plan versus 300 bucks on a customized training plan. Um, I think it's, it's, it's sometimes, sometimes people just see dollar signs and don't think about their entire year going to crap because they're using the wrong training approach or something that's not customized to them. So I don't, I don't want to let that sound like a sales spiel or something like that, but I'm just saying, I mean, like I'm not a huge fan of cookie cutter plans. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Ben, it's been great talking to you. You know, one final question I'd like to ask you is, do you have any final tips of anything to do with this minimal training or the high fat or a paleo lifestyle that one or two things that people listening could try to implement, you know, during the next week that might really help them? Do you have any ideas for our listeners? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll give you three. The first is what I just said. Cut your running down to twice a week. Do it for just a week and see how that feels and, and do the sessions that I talked about in the interview. The next would be to, for the next week, try and eat just three times a day and see if you can figure it out so that you're eating just three times a day actually supports any workouts you're doing in between that eating. And so you're, you're not going to graze. You're not going to do like pre-workout gels. You're not going to do during workout fuel, anything. And you can go out for two hours and work out as long as you've had a decent breakfast, you know, beforehand or two or three hours beforehand. So that's the next thing is, is kind of get out of this whole snacking frequently pre post-workout meal kind of mode and just eat three times a day. Just try it out. I know I said I eat four times a day, but I want you to see if you can eat three times a day. Um, and then, uh, the last thing I would say is one big, big thing that I use for recovery to burn extra fat to keep me lean um, I like to eat a lot so it lets me do that too obviously the diet I described to you is like 3,500 calories a day um, and if I'm running 20 minutes I'm not exactly burning 3,500 calories a day so I do cold thermogenesis so I do cold water submersion cold showers every single morning I take a cold shower for 5 minutes every single evening I take a cold shower for 5 minutes I'll go jump in the 45 degree river by my house and just soak for a while until I turn blue in the face and then get out and that kind of stuff has some cool effects on your inflammation um, on your appetite regulation calorie burning stuff like that so that's another thing to try out is, is cold thermogenesis and I've got a bunch of if you go to bengreenfieldfitness.com and do a search for cold thermogenesis I've got a bunch of interesting data on there about that too so awesome well Ben thanks so much for those tips and thanks for being part of the show it's been great talking to you cool happy to help man you've been listening to another episode of paleo runner podcast For more information, go to paleorunner.org. Thanks for listening.